0: Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the
1: sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother! This is Eat and Drink with Ali Hassan and Marco Timpano, the podcast where back of house Sally and front of house Marco talk food and drink. Heads up! These two spent decades in
2: restaurants, so some mature content and language is bound to come up. Get ready for Eat and Drink. Forks up. <laughs> All right, you're listening to Eat and Drink. I'm Marco Timpano. I'm Ali Hassan.
1: What a what a your your voice is quivering with excitement, Marco. I can't wait for you to tell people why
2: that's the case. This is a very special episode, man. This this is a a very special episode. It's a it's such a special episode. I feel like I've done it twice, is what I'm gonna say. I'm gonna blow your mind with some information here, Marco. You have done it
1: twice. You have done it twice. Uh, The reason we have done this twice, and the first episode, unfortunately, no one will ever be able to hear, and that is... uh That is on me. I don't know why. I don't know. I can't explain how it's on me, but something went wrong on
2: my end. No, no. It was the technology we're using. And you know what I sum it up as? You know, sometimes they say when you hear the voice of God, it is so perfect, it cannot be retained in your memory. I feel like the first interview was like that. It was so perfect that we didn't deserve to have it. You got a real loving Italian
1: mother vibe today. You're really, no, no, you don't blame yourself, okay? You're a good boy. No, I love you, Marco. Thank you so much. Uh, there is some chuckling in the background. Let's uh, let's let you know why that's the case. We have a very special guest who we actually had interviewed. We had a whole audio mishap. This is our second time talking to her. It'll only be sweeter. Uh, yes. please uh, let's introduce to you uh Joshina Marhaj. Hi Joshna. Hello. Now Joshna, uh, some of you will know if you've read the um the 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 preview of this show, you know what you're about to hear. Joshna, you are an author, you are an activist, you are um you chef. run a chef. In chef. There. Yeah, let's say yes. I throw was in getting there. to, you know, I was like, what, what do we parse out? What do we what do we leave in? Yep. Um but you are also um, – I have an origin story with Joshna, which is why – Oh, my God. I, let's hear it. Yeah. So I you know, I used to sit at home and watch the Food Network many years ago. We're talking like 12, 15 years ago, yeah. many years ago. I, oh, I know where you're going Network with this. I know where you're going with this. Okay. And yes. I, would, uh, I would look at some of these chefs and I would be like, I could do this. I could – not only could I do this – they need me to do this was my ego at the time i was like i could blow the this this network out of the. I, I i they need me why aren't they calling me you know and i would audition for the food network and i would sit at home sad a very very pathetic time in my life where the phone would ring and it would be like uh, uh, food network oh, oh i can't talk right now i'm expecting a call <laughs> like you know cuz i was doing so much auditioning and i was hoping to be on the network and it was my singular focus in life and i talked about this on the podcast and then one day I'm watching a show called Party Dish. Party Dish had a a host, small blonde woman. I can't remember her name. Trish Magwood. Trish Magwood, <laughs> and uh, she has guests from time to time. And I was a caterer, so Party Dish was Trish right, Magwood caterer. she was a caterer. I was a okay. caterer. Yeah, I wasn't just any schlub living in my parents' basement. I was. You were. Caterer. You had skin in the game. Got I it. had skin in the game. It wasn't total delusion. Um, it was delusion in the sense that I thought it would be so easy to just host a show at that stage with zero experience doing it. <laughs> One day, as a guest, this larger than life brown woman comes on. She knows her shit. She's confident. She's got skills. She's got experience. And in a moment where I should have felt envy and jealousy, I felt like Food Network. Full respect, you're giving the right person the job. And joshina Maharaj, uh, spoiler alert, that person was you. And it was. Oh my God, that's so nice. Yeah. it's so sweet you. to know
0: that you were watching. That was, my, was my first foray yeah. into television.
1: That's so it was, nice. Uh, was that number one there? That was number one, easily number yes. one. Yeah. And then I saw you over the years in, in different lifestyle shows like Stephen and Chris. And then we met at the Devour Food and Film Festival. That's it. And part of me was like, I don't want this person to think that I'm, uh, you know, standing them or whatever. But but you've been part of my food
2: life for oh, many, many, years.
1: I love that. The, the, I love that.
2: The Devour Food Festival, is that the one that takes place in Wolfville, Nova Scotia you got that we it. talk about? You got it. Yes. I mean, only awesome. mention it every four episodes. That's really you know,
0: like our love really bloomed in that
1: like four days in Wolfville, Ellie it did it did we were staying in the same we were staying in the same inn yep and every morning we would come out of the inn at the same time and i would be like i have some stomach issues i hope you didn't hear any of that and she's like i <laughs> hope is. you didn't hear cuz we were on
0: the other side of the wall from each other That's
1: <laughs> And we were also eating oysters till the late hours right, and stuff. I mean, right. you know, I was like, whoever's hearing this is, I'm so sorry. And then it was you in the morning. I was like, oh, God, no. And you're like, I heard nothing. You heard nothing? I was like, I, I heard, heard nothing. nothing. And then and then the we'd dog sit
0: dog there dog. and eat our toast and Jacques Pepin
1: would walk down the stairs. That's right. That's right. That was <laughs> a good time. So it's really nice to have you here. And it's really nice to uh, talk about uh, some of the work you're doing. Marco, I'll let you uh, let you jump in here. Yeah. So first of all, uh, I could talk to Joshna about our uh, our intimate time in Wolfville. Indeed.
2: Well, let me just start by clarifying all the things that uh, that our guest has because it may have gotten obscure off the top. So, Joshna, you're a chef. (laughs) How dare you? I'm a professional. What? Listen, I. (laughs) You know what? I want to make sure it's clear. You're a chef. You're yes. the author of the book, Take Back the Tray, that is yes. published by NCW Press, that's available, it? it was published this year. You're <laughs> an activist, you're a TED Talker, and you're also a podcaster. So we're, I'm pretty thrilled to have you, have yes. you on the podcast today. So, so this is so great. And all those details will be in our show notes Thank as you. well, where you, where you can get the book. But we'll talk about the book in a second. I just want to know, what first got you behind the knife? How, how did you become a chef? Uh, okay,
0: so uh, that's it's a it's a every time I tell the story, I say a quiet prayer of thanks that it's such a romantic one. Uh, but before I tell you that, I have to say that it needs to be noted that I am the oldest female child in an Indian family, so there was okay. really no way that I was escaping the kitchen, right? That that's just it with the run and get this, and the peeling the onions, and doing the dishes, and just watching my mom and my aunties uh, spin up delicious things in the kitchen. That that was easily the start. But for me, the magic really happened when I went to live in India for a year. Uh, this was after I graduated from university uh, with a degree in religious studies and women's studies, uh, which just makes me really interesting party conversation. Uh, right. And, you know, there's, there's not exactly a job at the end of that. Um, and so <laughs> I made it a and, minor and in art history. At that point. Yeah, and my parents, thankfully, were cool enough. To you know, to let me do whatever I wanted, and you know, just just pursue some knowledge, which was exciting. But they were also like, "Okay, you need a plan. What are you going to do?" And so I made a deal with them that they would go let me live in the mountains in India for a year, and that I would come home like refreshed and like all existential dilemmas sorted out with a plan for my future.
1: You say it like it was easy street. I made a deal with them. Was that? Was it that way, or did that take some major? Oh no, no, that took yeah. some
0: finagling for sure. Right. It helped that it was that I was going to go to India, right? It may have been different if I was like, I'm going to go to Outer Mongolia for right. a while. I'm going to live in Club Med hedonism. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, or like you know Austin or something. Like it might have been, it might have been a different vibe. Uh, the fact that I wanted to go live in the mountains in a little ashram. Uh, they, they, that, that, you know, it was charming enough. And so they went for it and I like went for walks and ate mangoes and that was my plan. But then the aunties who worked in the kitchen, uh, they were very concerned about what on earth I was doing and who my insane parents were who just (laughs) let me fly off to the other side of the planet. Right. I was 24, uh, and I was not getting any more eligible for a good marriage, right? Uh,
1: so you were one of the few brown women and the youngest person there. Is it Was it that thing that you really stuck out to these aunties? hundred oh. percent, right? And the fact that I was not quiet,
0: right? <laughs> Which is not exactly the vibe for an Asher. You know what I mean? Everyone else is like super <laughs> pious and like doing their thing with their white robes and all this business. And I'm there being like, good morning, everybody, right? It was just like, it was ridiculous. <laughs> Uh, How they put up with me, I don't know. Uh, But it all like they were just like, who is she? What is she doing? What is happening? Uh, Does she know how to cook was the question, right? And the answer at the time was no, uh, because I didn't know how to cook Indian food. And obviously that's what they were really asking, right? So they literally like at that moment dragged me into the kitchen and turned me into the chapati maker for that night. Uh, and I and I like kneaded dough and rolled these things and toasted them, and they they sat there. These two like village aunties sat mm-hmm. there as my like prospective mothers-in-law to see how my rotis were rolled and
1: how they were going to puff up, <laughs> right? Because those are all the things that I people should me. know. That actually, that that's um, you know, if, if you want, if you if your only foray into Indian culture is like bend it like Beckham or something like that, right? There is that classic line. Who's gonna marry a woman who doesn't know how to make a decent chapati or a decent like every family has their own thing, but a chapati is a classic. It is a it is quintessential. To especially north indian cuisine and if you're looking if your chapatis are looking like beaver tails that could yeah or like africa exactly yes yeah
0: right that it's it's a direct indicator of what your mother did or did not do for you right right
2: right oh, wow uh, So a lot of pressure true. going on here
0: very much very much uh but in this process uh and i went back the next like i fell in love with all of it right and it's like it's important to note that a kitchen in this context is like in an ashram, A kitchen is considered a sacred space. So I'm in there barefoot, right? You leave your shoes and quite beautifully your shit at the door. Right. And then you go inside and just focus on cooking, but I'm literally chopping in my lap um, and stirring giant pots of things with like what looked like a boat oar to me.
2: Mm -hmm. Um,
0: And there was no stainless steel, anything or crisp white linens or any of that. Right. But there was just something about, cooking and feeding people that like filled me with so much joy and excitement. And I was like, wait a minute, I could do this. This is a legit job that someone could have. So I sent a proclamation home to my parents. I wrote a letter because that's what life was like then. Mm. Uh, And I told them that I was to be a chef and that this was the plan. Oh, wow. How did they take that news? Uh, They were not impressed at all. (laughs) Uh, I think my mother's words back to me in a letter, right, were this is just another airy fairy thing that Mm -hmm. you want to do. And it's really time that you start taking responsibility for your life and making more, you know, solid decisions. Uh, So because I had just graduated from university, I had all kinds of time on my hands. I wrote her back a like well-argued hamburger paragraph essay defending my position. Uh, and so then she wrote me back and she was like, well, both both my parents wrote me back and they're like, well, you've clearly thought about this. So, all right, off you go. Uh, right. I was like, I needed to make my case. They're like, those are three fair, good arguments. So we can't, we're not going to object to this. Go ahead. I love that. Uh, and there it was. That. And I waited for a dial-up connection, uh, yeah. the like two hours a day that we had <laughs> access to a dial-up connection to make my first ever
1: online application to George Brown College. I love it. I love it. You know, I also love that story because I think I've told you this, but I, um, I tried to pull the same thing, right? I had an MBA in hand, so I had even a higher level of education and I was like, I don't, I'm not good at that. I need tutoring in every single subject, but I love cooking mom. I want to be a chef and our house it got shut down. So, and I, the worst, the, the bad news for me is I needed their help to co sign a loan for whatever okay. further education. So I go, I want to be a chef. And my mom goes, which means <laughs> don't talk nonsense. So that yeah. was done. And then my dad goes, Ali, I mean, in Pakistan, people would slap the chef, uh, the, the cooks on the back of the head and send them back into the kitchen. No. Them, I'm like, yeah. Yeah, I know. That's why I don't want to be a chef in Pakistan. Also, that country needs to take a good look at itself. What the hell is that all <laughs> about? I want to be a chef in Montreal, where people are like "Merci, chef," "Au revoir, chef." You know, right, kind of right. Um, so, anyway, I love that story. That it was like your 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 powers of persuasion are 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 being sort of you know um, smoothed over a little bit. Like we're passing over them. But I think you must have an incredible ability to persuade people of stuff particularly your parents
0: (laughs) it's very kind i really they could tell that i really meant it uh and and you know it was so funny to your point about how what our family how our family responds you know about the fact that in pakistan you would smack the chef on the back of the head that like from my like extended family and the idea that i was going to be a chef was nothing exciting because Mm -hmm. basically you should know how to do that anyway Nothing right. special. You know
1: what I mean? Right. It's like, that's no big accomplishment that you're a woman who can cook. Uh, you know, I want to just dive into one thing about that. You said you grew up, you, you started this whole thing by saying you grew up watching your aunties and your mom cook. Yeah. Yeah. Were you invited into the kitchen? Was it like, uh, were you not competent? Was it like, was the whole, um, you cooking a complete surprise to everybody or did you have that interest in the kitchen no it was not a complete surprise at all uh, i think
0: i think that it was unexpected that i i think everybody thought that i was headed in a more academic direction mm-hmm. right That maybe i'd be a writer a journalist or some business like that the idea that i made a switch and essentially went to like uh you know what i mean it was a community college to learn a trade right yeah. essentially is the context of culinary school that's the way it lives right uh, that was a bit, I think that was a bit of a surprise to people. Uh, but, but they, what they didn't know was the plan. You know what I mean? That I wasn't just going to be any old restaurant chef.
2: Mm-hmm. How fascinating is it that, you know, people thought you were going to be a writer and journalist. And when you decided you wanted to be a chef and you made your case for it and you did go into that venue that you ultimately merged those two elements together. You are a writer and a chef and you know, your family allowing you to pursue your dream has really brought us more than just someone who cooks. And, you know, I'd yeah. love to know the impact of your, you know, you, you following your dream has had with other people who see you and want to do do what you oh, do. Oh, man, what a sweet question. Thank you. Uh, it is really the truth.
0: And and quite sweetly, both my parents have uh, been very, very excited about the way this has ended up because for sure. I had nobody planned this one out, right? This has been a glorious, beautiful adventure that was laid out for me, and I just needed to be brave enough to keep going, you know. Um, but one of the one of the loveliest things, Ali, when you were talking about your conversation with your parents, one of the sweetest things that happens uh, when I'm out speaking or at an event or doing something is that there's always a collection of young brown women who just want to talk to me. They just want to say hi. They they literally are just excited that I exist right? And they have said things to me like, um, could you please tell us, this is my the sweetest question, could you please tell us what the line is that you say to Indian parents that lets them allow you to go to cooking school? Because clearly you've figured out what the magic phrases to unlock the permission. And this is what I want to do. uh, And so please help me. How do I do this? Right. Which I think is super lovely. And the look on their faces when I say that I wrote and argued, I wrote an essay and argued my position was definitely not what they anticipated. Uh, but that's just that kind of feedback is amazing and and i've had other young women say that that being able to play a video of me on television cooking or re, you know watch a TED talk or see something was what showed their parents their indian parents that there was a viable career for a brown woman in this field, right? Yeah. Which it like the tears will well up instantly because mm. I have just been trying to do this crazy thing to make to make it work for myself. And the idea that it is it is actually a something and that it means this, much to other people to see me out there doing this is really like, it's inc- It's nothing sort of incredible. It's the, the loveliest gift.
1: And it's also something worth diving into in the sense that people might, you know, with their sort of a limited understanding of chef school, they think they want to be a chef and then they want to work in a restaurant or they want to run a restaurant right. or they want to manage a restaurant and it's all restaurant. As Marco suggested, your path has been so different where you're now merging those uh, you know, journalistic and 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 writing and speaking endeavors and that loud person in an ashram is getting yeah. her voice out or has gotten her voice out. I want to ask you a little bit about the journey. What was your vision for what's going to happen after chef school and what did happen after chef school? Yeah. You know,
0: uh, I remember what part of my argued defense to my parents was that George Brown had some like 95% placement rate. Right. So that was like, listen, there's a job at the end of this, which was that was a big deal for me to come up with something that there was a job at the end of. Right. Uh Uh, So that was, you know, that was a big deal. But the honest truth is, once I got there and I saw what these jobs were. Uh, and I, I just, I got a taste of the vibe of that professional kitchen. I was really not interested in it, right? Because look, I came from my like spiritual ashram, good vibes, you know what I mean? Like water for chocolate kind of good feelings about cooking. But it became right. super clear to me in the one year that I spent uh, in cooking school that there was no room for that. Right? And that nobody was interested in that, and that there was very clear structure, um, I mean, even just the simple fact that in my class of like two hundred students, there were like five women, right oh, wow. two of us women of color.
1: Okay, Uh, so you're not just talking about there was no room for you suggesting to a chef, maybe you could add some ginger to this. You're talking about you as a person, as a woman. All of it,
0: for sure, right? I just realized how upstream my effort really was on so many levels, right? One, it was like... The food was so fascinating, right? Because to me, this a lot was all French, right? Obviously, the, all, the whole curriculum is entirely French. They have one lab one day devoted, one three-hour lab devoted to both walk uh, stir fries and curries. Oh yeah, well, I mean, how, how
2: how much time do you really need <laughs> right? on food that spends thousands pan, and thousands of
0: trusses, whatever? <laughs>
2: right? Did you yeah, learn you know, anything when they taught you that in that one day? Does anything come out? I just, no, I you know, do- in fact.
0: You'll laugh because I took my, it was a lamb curry that they wanted us to make. And I looked at the recipe of the masala and I was not excited about it. So I took my own masala in.
2: Yeah. Right. right? I
0: was like, listen, these other, these other not Indian people can do whatever they want to do, but I can't do this. Uh, I so I, I, You know what I mean? I roasted and ground the masala and took it in and I used that. So when the chef came around to grade my curry, I pulled out the container. I was like, look, chef, I'm sorry. I didn't like that, what you did. And so yeah. this is what I've done. And here's the curry that I've made. And he tasted the curry and he looked at me and he looked at the masala and he took the masala and he shoved it in his apron pocket <laughs> Okay. And walked away. And I was like, I hope there's a good mark on the other side yeah, of that little. Yeah, no kidding. Know? I'll
1: let you take that, Chef. I'll let you take <laughs> that. I want, I want an A for that.
2: Uh, and you know, said he to... listening and uh, is wondering why we're talking about George Brown, our international listeners. I just want to make mention that George oh, yeah. Brown is actually a school. Yes. Uh, it's, a, it's a college here in, in Toronto. And they have a culinary arts program uh, in case people are like, why is she talking about this guy, George Brown? It's George, actually the exactly. college. Exactly.
1: He's a brown college. man named George. He teaches <laughs> people how to make bad
2: Indian cooking. Bad nothing Indian. to
1: do with that. You know, uh, ah. Joshna, I gotta tell you, I once uh, one of my buddies doesn't have a great palate. He was my old roommate, Punjabi guy, but doesn't really know food very well. Right. So he had to do a tasting for his wedding. Okay. And uh, he goes, Come to me, come, come with me to the Ritz Carlton, you know, and, and let's do a tasting there. Uh, you you know food. I don't sure. know anything about food. Yeah. I did a tasting and I said, Listen, I don't know what this is. But this is not Vindaloo. I don't know what this is, but this is not whatever you think, whatever you're calling this, this doesn't work. I'm not saying right. it's bad, but this is not, it's not Indian food. Yeah.
0: This might just be a case of bad naming.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and the, the Mitra D or whatever his, the guy's position was the manager of the hotel was like, okay, would you be able to cater this wedding? He just broke. He just broke. been really? telling? Yeah, they'd been telling a lie the entire time just to get my friend's business. Oh my god! And then if he broke in the meeting. I go, yeah, I guess. And the, my buddy Deepa goes, "Listen, I I actually wanted you to attend my wedding, but if the food's going to be good for two hundred people because yeah. you were in the kitchen, I'd rather that, to be honest." And so I never really got to attend his wedding. I that's peeked my head crazy. out a couple of times, and then I had the whole Ritz Carlton crew uh, Whoa, helping me out, that's and awesome. it was great. It was a great night. It was a great Did couple you of days. Yeah, 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 absolutely, Ali. Uh, that's that's fun. Yeah, yeah, that was on my resume for a long time, but that's the exact same situation you had, where you're like, I don't like what's happening here, and I'm yeah, just going to have to I call it out. That. And it gave me a job. Um, wow, but like, but more to that, it
0: just it became really clear that the jobs that were available were restaurant jobs or hotel jobs right and and it was just not interesting to me, uh, and I just saw the fight like listen, uh one of the classes that they have in the second semester is to do is essentially a stage or like a like you have a chance to work in a restaurant and do restaurant service right uh, currently, it's called the chef's house at the time that I was there it was called Siegfried's, and we would do fourteen weeks a whole semester in there. Uh, and work different stations, right? So we all got a sense of what this was all about. And I remember this one time I was in there. So the lab is like 30 of us. There's two women in this lab of 30 people. And I got put on the entree, which which happened to be a mixed grill, right? We had all kinds of bits of things. So there was like chopped sausage, a little bit of chicken, whatever it was. There was like five different elements, right? And we have like three hours to prep and get ready for service. And over the course of that three hours, Every single dude in that kitchen had to take a moment to come and walk past the grill to ask to quiz me on my plan for preparing this food.
2: Hmm.
0: Right? They it was so it was laughable. And, and I remember towards the end, I was like, you too, huh? You couldn't sit still. You had to just come over and be sure that I knew what I was doing on the grill. And I was like, what is it with dudes and like this is ridiculous. Uh, and, and it, and it was, and I'm like, this isn't, and it just happened over and over again, right? The, this industry has, has now become, you know, quite, um, exposed and famous for a lot of this nonsense. Uh, but at the right. time, this was like 2001, it was very clear to me that, uh, whatever, like that, the idea that I would go and take a job in a restaurant, which is not a thing that I was actually that excited about. And that doing that, it would still be this kind of fight,
1: Right, right. right. To, to I didn't want to be here effect. badly enough to go through this garbage.
0: Yeah, I was like, I don't care about this enough. I got to find another yeah. way to do this. Yeah. Uh, so what yeah. I left cooking school with was a very clear idea of what I did not want to do.
2: Right. Uh, right? Sometimes, I, that, sometimes yeah. that's where, you know, your education of knowing what you want to bring forth rather than what you don't want to continue to partake in is a that's huge it. learning learning um, moment and and it really helps you to pivot yourself to be like you know what what i'm looking for is not there so just look yeah.
1: somewhere else just you know yeah. what i mean just like forget it turn as pivot and try something else as soon as you can wipe a whole industry off the table i think that really helps it doesn't actually i don't know how you felt at the time you might have been like oh my god now what but i think like you know overall that's great to just be like okay This is good. It felt really helpful.
0: And I I was young enough to still be really idealistic about what I could create for myself. Thank goodness. I don't Mm. know. Like, that was 25-year-old Joshna, right? I don't know if 44-year-old Joshna would have been quite as plucky, (laughs) you know what I mean? To be like, don't worry, I'll build it, Uh, uh, because I'm way more exhausted now. But uh, at the time, I was like, okay, let me figure this out. And beautifully, it all really
1: happened. And what did you figure out in the end back then? And, and how is it different from where your path took you? Was, did you get on your path to right now to becoming author, no, chef, activist No, no. right then? It, not even a little bit. Okay. No,
0: not at all. My first foray was uh, working at a place called Dish Cooking Studio. And I was the morning pastry cook. And so Dish going, was
1: Trish Megwood,
0: I think. Yes, that's, yes. Where yeah. that's where it all came. Exactly. Uh, but my, my job after the Dish was my job at the stop Right, which is a community food center in the west end of Toronto. Where you continue to be. Yes. Well, uh, yes, uh, I'm on the board exactly um, now. But this, um, that is that place, and running that kitchen for five years was really what molded the kind of chef that I have become. Right. Because I, I found a very cool opportunity to do work that was in, that I needed that grassroots connection. Right. I, sure. I, I actually care much more about what people are eating when they're not in restaurants and why so not can, everybody has good food on the table that, you know, that Josh, was more meaningful.
2: Joshua, can you explain to our listeners what the stop is? Because I know Next. what it is in Toronto, but uh, and I'm sure. sure other people in other communities have similar similar places.
0: Yeah, the stop is a wonderful place. It's a community food center. And what I love about it is it takes a really holistic approach to supporting communities living with poverty and then hunger, right? The idea of hunger is very much a child of poverty. um, And so the most immediate pieces are like a dining program for meals and a food bank, right? Uh, So obviously we can't get away from that because people ideally need to eat three times a day. Uh, and so we have to we have to prov- you know provide the support for folks, but the other piece is understanding that we can build skills and capacity at the same time. So there's urban agriculture. I ran the community kitchens program. There's perinatal education, and I ran a kids program, which was a hilarious riot. Um, And then there also was really strong advocacy to support community members to be able to tell their stories and, you know, so that they could be interviewed by CP24, you know, uh, deputations at City Hall and that sort of thing to really advocate for uh, higher social assistance rates or or ways – for people to, in fact, lift themselves out of poverty, right? because it is uh, it is uh, it is a, a very strong determinant of poor health. Um, and so that to me, being a chef in that space felt much more exciting, right because these and these are not places where chefs usually find themselves because there's no right. there's no there's no pots and pans deal on the other end of this one. Mm-hmm. Uh, or or any major fame, uh, and so I was. It was a risk for sure, and I was unsure. But I made a deal with myself, uh, and I said, "Listen, just because people aren't paying for your food does not mean that your kitchen is not going to run just like any other professional kitchen in this mm. city, right? What makes the integrity of a cook is not just that people buy their food, right, right." craft of what they do. And I was like, literally, I was like, fingers crossed behind my back. Let's see if
1: I can pull this off. Yeah. Well, Marco and I have said many times on this show, the worst part of working in a restaurant is the clientele. The people are the worst. And and because they're paying, they have a sense of entitlement often, or they have some certain expectations. When you're just doing something good and it's not for the money and you wipe out all that other garbage basically the transaction of it. Yes. Yeah. You can really focus on the goodness of it. And uh, man, that's, that's I totally see why this would be so valuable.
0: It really worked. And to see that my, my slightly elevated skills allowed us to do better things with the, with the very humble food ingredients that we had to work with. Right. A lot of it was donated stuff via the uh, lovely people at daily bread and second harvest. Um, And so, but just the fact that I, uh, could teach people how to make a really simple like canola oil and red wine vinegar or vinaigrette, right? There's nothing special, but, we could, but I could do this. I could pull it off and I could train people uh, to do this. And that's when we noticed that putting better things on the plates and really reformulating what those meals look like was actually – uh, effective in attempting to to break the cycle for folks who, you know, when you uh, live with poverty uh, and are with that kind of vulnerability, you eat a lot of really nutritionally empty food.
2: Right. Right. That's a, that's a huge problem in a lot of places, including like uh, cities that have food deserts, right? Yep. They don't have Not access at- to nutritional food. And so you're perpetuating this sort of unhealthy lifestyle in a community that, that needs more uh, positive energy that's it food Ooh, yeah it. all that food is like
0: curiously non-perishable wow right because it can sit in a bin in a grocery store you know all sure. that oh, there are refrigerated trucks oh there's lots of these factors but uh, unfortunately people's lives and bodies are paying the price for these things that feel too expensive or inconvenient
2: Joshna, I got to say, listening to you speak, uh, the word that just keeps popping in my head is impact, impact, impact mm. from from you going to that ashram to you talking to your parents and the, the impact that you had as a chef in George Brown, you as a chef at the stop. Now, that leads me to your book, Take Back the yes. Trade, because it's all about impact. It's not a cookbook. No, it is. Uh, it is a book that for me has a lot of impact. Can you tell us about it and how how it came to be? Yeah, wonderful. Thank you for that. Um, so the after I left the stop, trying
0: to figure out what was next was a really tricky one. Uh, and you know what the sort of next move was going to be. And quite wonderfully, I got this opportunity to, to get into a hospital, it was a Scarborough hospital, um, and to support them uh, to refresh their menu and to rethink how the food like how the food was purchased, prepared and served to patients. Right Right. and and that came to me uh, through sort of our food community with recommend you know people were like we we see this request from this hospital and you're the only one we we can think of who can address this Uh, and I jumped instantly on that um, and really dove in to working with that team Uh, and so I spent a year there with them and then I had another chance to do a project at Sick Kids Hospital uh and and sweetly this like i got very excited about trying to figure this change out right institutions are easily i think the like they have been left to the end of our food revolution because they're easily right. the messiest big you know what i mean giant most big beasts to turn around uh so there's a reason right and i was like oh i understand why no one has tackled this yet because it is a giant mess and even my colleagues and my friends uh, in the community, they were like, how about we send you into the belly of the beast and you just come back and let us know how we can help. Right? <laughs> They're like, we're here to help, but please go, you go figure it out and then just tell us what you need. Uh So anyhow, I did, after that, after two hospitals, I did, uh, I had a chance, amazingly, to overhaul campus food services at Ryerson University here in Toronto. Uh, And so that really, that offered me a more, a fuller experience of what it takes to actually turn the beast that is institutional food services around. Um, And so as you can imagine, there's incredible... Lessons, uh, and, and really, I like I figured some stuff out, right? I had two and a half years on the Ryerson campus, we actually got to see the results and impact, uh, you know, in a very tangible way. And so, after all of this, though, uh, I was left with, like, well, then
1: what now, right? What do I okay? Do but now? wait, hold, listen, yeah. I, have to, I have to dig into this a Please. little bit because I always feel like mm-hmm. I'm 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 I'd like to dwell in the negativity and that is not the case at all, but you're, you're using very positive words. Like you, you were able to overhaul or, uh, you know, figure stuff out. But I watched that series that Jamie Oliver did in schools, in institutions. And I watched the hell and the shit that he had to go through. You are effectively playing a Canadian Jamie Oliver in this thing where you go up against these beasts. The reasons people didn't, Want to tackle these institutions is because of the bureaucracy and because of all the walls you run up against. How did you do that? This could not have been easy. I I mean, you glossed it over with some with a with a positive thing, but but you must have been you you banging your head against the wall quite Uh, often. Bang my head against the wall. Solid uh, uh, drinking, I will say
0: for sure. I definitely (laughs) notably higher levels of drinking during those years for sure. Uh, But I it was. It became very clear very quickly uh, the, the kind of machine that I was attempting to change and go up against, right? And that there are and that we that our conversation about sustainability or rethinking even just rethinking the food that we serve is is not that deeply embedded anywhere, right? It was a mm-hmm. there's a very sort of superficial um uh regard given to this because once I started digging through and really trying to make change like to actually rework purchasing and you know even just, oh my god, thinking how thinking through getting an, a bureaucratic institution to rework how it buys food and to be actually to be able to pay a small family farmer yeah. uh, for you know, for a few cases of potatoes. Uh, as opposed to the sort of the large online order from a broadline, you know, a major broadline distributor when everything arrived shrink-wrapped on a skid the next morning. Uh, it was insane. Uh, it was so frustrating. I constantly drove home uh, asking myself why on earth I was attempting to do this. Hmm. Uh, right? It didn't make any sense to me. Um, but at the same time, right, there were little wins. Right. And there were little levers that I was able to pull and change that I was able to make. Uh, plus, I just the reality of the of the food service and the situation was so hard on my heart. Right. Oh, wow. The cook inside of me was just like this is I've got to figure this out, you know. And and listen, one of the delightful things that I have learned in my, in my career as sort of being, I listen, I've done a lot of things for the first time. I've been the first brown woman, brown person, woman to do a lot of things and to sort of crack things open. But what I have learned in that is that if you are brave enough to do this and to chart a path for the first time and do a thing that's never been done before, you the reward for that is being able to completely dispense with any worry of failure. Right? Because you always know more than you did before. Right? There's no, you don't have to worry that you're not doing it right because you have nothing to measure it against. Uh, And whatever you learn is always positive. Right? And that was a huge to be able to just release that and say, look, I have no idea what I'm going to find. But I remember Jamie Oliver and thinking to myself, even if this never works, we can at least document the effort and the attempt. Right. Sure. And That's... and then we can really identify the roadblocks. And right. and maybe if I can't figure it out, I can hand the baton to somebody else down the road who will, you know, will actually try and break this
1: thing down. I think that is a great way to look at because you, you referred to it as a beast earlier. And I, I remember I was in McGill University for three years, you know, and we used to go to one particular small cafeteria in the right. arts building. So, the first two years it was like three ladies who basically ran the place. We right. knew them, they knew us. They would come and tell us to hush up a little bit sometimes. but we had right. a nice relationship. The food tasted a certain way that was 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 decent. It was good. you know, it was still cafeteria food, but you could taste like the poutine gravy had some like character to it and right. and, and the sandwiches were like clearly wrapped by a human being back there in the morning. And then, in my final year of university, a total overhaul mcgill had clearly done some uh, a deal with some large company these big trucks would back up those ladies were gone the food was all you know mass processed and mass packaged and i remember thinking this is terrible the food tastes worse and this will never change. I remember thinking that. I didn't even have that food. Uh, I wasn't even in food as a career, and I remember thinking this will never change. We can never go back to what we had. So the fact that you were in this in this world and saying let me chip away let me chip away it totally is a beast and i think you do as you say you got to take those wins where you could get them and yeah uh, i had to recalibrate for sure because i had to really focus on celebrating even the
0: tiniest victories
2: uh, and what is the impact of that what is the impact when you get an institution to even just bring in potatoes from a local farmer
0: uh it i mean there's two ways to talk about that because uh the impact on like Every time we put fresh, scratch-made, wholesome things on the plate, they were very well received by patients. Right? That—that mm-hmm. that sure. is no question. People, you can easily tell something that has been made with with good ingredients, and someone, you know, some human beings' kind intentions uh, are will always be super distinct from something that just came was sort of rehydrated in a steam table. Right. Right.
2: Uh that well, even was- just. Even if you just think about it, if we're getting uh, potatoes from a local farmer uh, 30 minutes away from the city versus having something trucked in from chili yep. in a plastic bag that you open and throw into a hot plate, yep. there's a huge difference. And if you want people to heal in a hospital or if you want kids to learn in a school, I, th- I think
1: you can make a connection between those two Marco. things. Marco, you asshole, you know my family are Chilean
2: farmers, and that hits – that cuts me That cuts deep. And I think the hospitals in Chile should use your food, Absolutely. but the hospitals <laughs> in the country that you're in should be using no, local totally. farmers,
1: farms. Of course, of course.
2: Well, I mean – and this th- –
0: that to me was a lot of the fire that kept me going, right? Because I'm like, wait a minute. These are our public institutions, Right. And, and, and yes, I'm the one who sort of has the head in the clouds thinking about stuff like this. But in some way, they represent their reflection of who we are as a society. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and awesome. what our values are. Uh, and that's when things started to get really, really interesting, because when I started to take this values sort of lens on this work, I realized that that currently in the in institutions the only the real values that are being sort of nurtured and promoted are those of corporate relationships and contract compliance. That's right. right? That's that's it. That's it. Awesome. The actual well being of the of your end users are, is not on that list, right? right. Because right. if it, right and food is never on that list, right? I say uh, repeatedly that food in public institutions is an irritating necessity, best left to the lowest bidder. Right. 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 It is
2: Go ahead. For for me, it's always a slap in the face when you walk by City Hall or Parliament or any other political institution and look at the food choices that are around there for those people who work in those institutions and then go to a hospital, go to a school and take a look at what food options are there. And, you know, it just drives me crazy because I can get a fancy meal. I can get a fresh meal. I can get a vegetarian or vegetables near my city hall. But when I'm at a hospital, the the freshest thing I can get is a Subway sandwich. Right, right.
0: And it's just those global franchises that that, that have an undeniable monopoly on, on everybody in that space too, right? That's the I, other thing that became super clear. Like I remember seeing the Tim Hortons lineup. Had had every single person that moves through that building, right? Mm-hmm. There was there was someone in an IV cart, you know what I mean, trudging along. Uh, there was someone in a in a in a white coat and scrubs. Uh, there was a, like a worried parent. There was the security guard. There was a the maintenance guy. And I was and I I remember saying to myself as I walked past there, seeing this perpetually like you know twelve people deep lineup that the thing that we're not at all really ready to talk about is the fact that Tim Hortons is in fact feeding everybody in this building.
1: Sure. And that's not that's not part of the community. Like that is no. corporate, that's Brazilian owned. If people don't, don't know Tim Hortons uh, and all they know is like, oh yeah, that's a Canadian brand, is there's nothing Canadian about it and there's not nothing healthy all. about it. And I go on record to say that wherever I can. Marco and I both Joshina have had the um, Um, you know, uh, pleasure slash displeasure of spending a lot of times in hospitals as both of our fathers were hospitalized. I remember with my dad, I'd be, you know, by the the third week, I would have to go there at lunchtime and be like, okay, dad, here's the food. And he'd be like, I'm not eating that, not eating that. There's no way in hell I'll eat that. I'll try that. Okay, what do you want? And I would go get – this is a real – trip through Montreal here, I would go to get um, suvlaki from, uh, you know, let's say Arahova suvlaki, or I would right. go get my dad shawarma from Bustan shawarma. I would get uh, smoked meat from Schwartz. Was yes. it healthy? No, it doesn't matter. It's about being part of the community. It's about getting these, these, these sick people to feel um, connected to the community they're in to get them just to be eating. And I remember thinking like, what a unbelievable divide yeah. between The shawarma I'm getting my father with at least you know this fresh tabule and pickled turnips and hummus and stuff that and then the zero pride zero pride that's going into the meals that he's being served as as a sick person in a hospital yeah and uh, it affected me very deeply at that time and the fact that you worked in this space it's it's phenomenal it's really truly phenomenal
0: and it's it's so it is such an insult right. Uh, because look, the to me, with because I'm a cook, uh, I I view things and I view my job th- primarily through the lens of hospitality, right? Right. Hospitality is the most important thing, and and mm-hmm. I can very uh, easily define that as the relationship between guest and host, right? However you want to describe it, that's essentially what hospitality is. Um, and so from a hospitality perspective, those those like miserable trays of highly processed food tell the patients that they are not worth any more effort than that. Exactly. Yeah. Right? And to me, there's like immediate internal red flags there. And if you imagine that in Ontario, the average patient stay is four to six days, that to me, my math says that we are telling patients at a minimum Twelve times in their stay at a hospital, that they are in their health, their well being is not worth any more than the two dollars and
1: thirty cents that was spent on food ingredients for that trip. Yeah, wow. well, and, and so it, I, I think it comes from another place too, where you know, all my friends who are doctors have told me. You know, one of my buddies said, "Hey, man, if I if I tell you I did one full day, like ten hours of nutrition." Yeah, learning in my entire medical career, I'd be lying to you. Exactly, right? So it starts yeah. at that level. The doctors don't know about nutrition. i not, the, not at all. No, it's not. It's not. It's of no value. So you're like talk about an uphill battle. Yeah, man. Administrators, physicians, uh, policymakers, all these people need to take a different look at food. And I mean, I I don't know how you did it. I don't know how you had the success that you did. It's a, how do we make the change? it's uh, how do we, my my
0: relentlessness was mostly the way that this happened right I see. uh because i just i was i realized i was like the only reason this exists is because nobody with any real power cares enough about this to make things different right right and that that's the bottom line right because it's not it's not the money yes more money needs to be spent but that's it's if the shopping we're not going to shop our way out of this problem, right? We can't just throw money at this and have it all be better, right? There's a culture issue here, right? No, the 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 overlying ethos of these places do not believe that food is important,
2: and that so was how do like we get how do we get them to like, how do our listeners who are listening in, let's say, Chicago or mm-hmm. Miami or Saskatchewan, how do we get our listeners to say, you know what, these points are valid. But how do I get these institutions, whether it be my kid's school, whether it be the old age home where my parent is in or whether yep. it be the hospital, how do we get these institutions to change? How do we write this ship? Uh, so I think the first piece is
0: really yeah. about aggressive negative feedback.
2: Okay. Right? Mm. Because
0: one of the things that I hear a lot from administrators, um, and, and even what I witnessed on campus when we'd survey students um, about the food, is that the marks are never that bad. Right? The, the, they hover around average, sort of like low 60s. And for administrators, that's not terrible enough to warrant any action. I see. Right? And so, I mean, sadly, the real truth is, why is everybody's bar so damn low? Uh, yeah. Right? This, You know, that's the bigger question, but it was fascinating to me. And so I started thinking about, you know, what could be propelling this. Uh, And so one of my arguments to a hospital is that they need to actually give the patient satisfaction survey on like day two or three. Right. And not because usually they're given at discharge. And I think at that point, you'll say anything to get the F out of there. Right. Right. Uh, And so you're like, yeah, yeah, fine, fine. Good, 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 good. When as uh, at the end of day two, when it becomes super clear that this is the vibe of the food uh, that's when I want your feedback. (laughs) Tell me how it feels. And when you see that there's still another, at least two or three days left for you
1: to be there. um, I wonder if people think if I rank these mashed peas as a zero, Are they going to give me some something worse, some creamed turnips or something? This could be. uh, I don't want like it's the equivalent of the chef spitting in the food or something. Yeah,
0: it's. I mean, listen. The real truth is there's not much worse that it can get. Yeah. Uh, Right. It's really not much worse that it can get, and I've heard, I've heard administrators say things like, "If they're well enough to ask for better food, they're well enough to go home."
2: Oh wow! Wow.
0: Right. It's very like that, and those were the those were the really key moments that were indicators to me that, uh, that regardless of how cheaply I can make delicious, like that it's fruitless for me to attempt this, right. What I actually have to figure out how to do is to get these people to care about this more. Yeah. Uh, in a way that is not
1: solely and primarily anchored in a financial argument. Sure. I mean, this is something Mark, and I've been talking about too, I, I think there's two things that strike to me. One is the, the issue of community, which, which, you know, we can get back to, but, It's this idea of food as medicine. Food, it's something that heals. Food is something that nourishes. At the very least, food, you know, if people say laughter is the best medicine, wait till you see food. It's pretty damn good also. You know, people believe more in laughter. And of course I do. I've made a living, but that's very temporary. Food, we eat, as you said, three times a day minimum. I could go five or six. I mean, how can you meal after meal after meal be so void of nourishment, it's it's well, baffling. This, this, So I, this this has
0: resulted in me becoming very uh, hardcore about my about my advocacy around this, right? About the fact that we just need to take food more seriously mm-hmm. uh, because this is it's it's not doing the job, right? It's not actually right. feeding people. We have about forty percent of what's on those trays comes back and takes a long road right to landfill, right? right? Which is important uh the whole process of buying this of buying this packaged processed imported food is, is the cost of that is is rising steeply as uh climate change becomes a larger and larger monster for us to deal with right
2: isn't uh, it a fallacy isn't it a fallacy yeah. to say that the bottom line of any institution is to get this pre-packaged food that's being shipped in from other places where if we had supported our farmers through large institutions then we we would actually be providing uh, a better system of monetary compensation to both the farmers in our communities and the institutions working in a symbiotic sort of relationship, rather than using these conglomerates that make packaged food from God knows where uh, and and you know really stiffing the people who are creating that food too to get it as yep. cheap as, they, as possible. Got it. 100%. It became super
0: clear, right? Because if we think about now, there's back to this point about our institutions being a reflection of who we are, uh, why on earth do we not have mandatory minimum purchasing of local product yeah. in our institutions? Right. That's that's first the first top of the list that would make my job so much easier, because when I was in there, I didn't we didn't have that. Uh, and we still don't. Right. This is the kind of policy support that I look to government for um, is we don't have any of that. And all of the money that we spend uh, goes away from the community to someone's home office. Oftentimes it's in the U.S., Uh, And that to me is a disaster. If you imagine that the average university um, or even uh, the average university spends about $2 million a year on food ingredients. Wow. Right? Uh, and a hospital was like a you know a million something like it's it's close, uh, and like even from the post secondary perspective, there are thirty four post secondary institutions in Southern Ontario. And if they even if they just spent a million dollars on on produce and meat and dairy, which is all stuff that we'd get locally, right? Don't you think our agricultural sector
1: could use a thirty four million dollar investment? This is the thing. This is, I think people don't think about, you know, when we talk about buy local and shop local, I don't I don't think everybody fully appreciates it. And I don't think, I would say I do appreciate it, but I think this conversation with you has helped me appreciate it even more, you know, uh, not to bring up uh, Marco's most hated ethnic group, the Chileans, but why are we supporting their economy in such big numbers? Why wouldn't we want to support uh, local farmers. Why wouldn't we want to know exactly where stuff is coming from? Why wouldn't we want our own community and our own environment and our own um, economy to blossom uh, locally when we absolutely can do it too? Well, well, and this is exactly the piece, right? Because what really would rub me
0: was that every time I, made, I wanted to make a move around purchasing, I was really confronted by this like, but you know, inches thick stack of purchasing policies. Right? Yeah. And, and all, all this bureaucracy and all this nonsense that I had to read through and all the compliance that was being demanded of me uh, was all in the interest of the most transparent, uh, fair use of public money. Right. And I, and I was like, this is garbage. This thinking is garbage because don't you think that a system that actually supports the entire chain of hands that move food from field to kitchen to table, right where it's all happening is in fact the better use of public money? Right, this right. like right. The, no. the idea is that for every dollar spent on the agricultural sector, something like two dollars and thirteen cents actually stays in the local economy.
2: Yeah, and it drives me crazy because you know it's often portrayed as oh these poor farmers we have to support these uh, poor farmers with subsidies. The government is doing everything they can when the government is actually not doing everything they can because of okay. so the government said to these institutions you need to be using food from our go- our farmers. They'd be we doing to much more, it. yeah,
0: farmers.
2: prioritize that. Prioritize Canadian farmers or your local farmers wherever you're listening. If you're listening from the UK or from the United States or Ch- Chile for that matter. And the reason I have a, a, a beef with the Chileans is because they started it first with me and their wine. But that's another story. I won't get into at this moment. This Chile, so you know, you he can't are. go new
1: world. He can't go new world. He's an old guy. He's an old an old soul. <laughs> Uh, I think that number though Joshua $2.13 is worth uh, is worth repeating um that yeah, it's
0: really important for us to well. really connect. And, and again, this is really back to our values, right? What do we think is important from, I mean, we haven't even sort of gone into the conversation about the idea of, about thinking about what heals us and what nurtures right. us. And since the beginning of time, since humans existed, we have understood that the land around us is what nurtures us and heals us.
2: It's right? amazing. So why should know, we I, want
0: things grown here, to go into the bodies of the people who need to get well. Mm -hmm.
2: This is, this is, you know, this is a discussion that we could have for hours. And I'm so grateful that we've had a bit of it here on the podcast today. I want to go back to your book, Take Back the Trade, revolutionizing food and hospitals, schools, and other organizations. This is not a cookbook. You're a chef. Yep. Uh, Definitely.
0: And, And I hope that what is in between those covers is two two things. One, a compelling story about my efforts in overhauling institutional food and uh, some compelling arguments for why this is easily This is a thing that is very possible, right? I think, uh, and as much as there have definitely been hard moments and times where I would like, you know, call my mother and be like, why on earth have I decided to do this? What kind of crazy maniac am I? Uh, Right. But there have also been enough glorious moments where things came together so beautifully that I was that I realized that this is in fact very possible. Uh, so it's a good news story. It is hopeful, um, and I really I position it from the perspective of a chef who decided to do something a little bit different.
2: It should be mandatory read, uh, reading for anyone who works in a hospital, a school or another institution that provides food for other people. Take Back the Tray, revolutionizing food in hospitals, schools and other organizations published by ECW Press, available at Indigo, Barnes and Nobles or on Amazon. You can find this book. There's no excuse for any hospital administrator, school uh, administrator to not be reading what's in this book.
1: Ah, oh, Marco, thank you for that and i think there's a much broader uh, a broader audience for that too because going back to that great uh, line of yours Joshua when you said aggressive negative feedback yes. i think it's important for people who use these institutions to know how to make change how to affect change and yes. i'm sure that's only one of the suggestions you Well
0: had. and the truth is if we sit around and wait for the government to turn the lights on about their understanding about our food system the planet will likely burn up in the meantime right we don't have that kind of time to wait and so i really the focus of my book is to really encourage people at the grassroots level to get involved and make noise because listen The bottom line on all of this is that these are our systems. We built them. Earlier versions of us built them to suit what we needed then. And if they don't work for us now, it's our job to change them. Mm -hmm. Uh, So just uh, for everybody to really connect to a bit more ownership of things like this uh, and just realize that we actually have this power. We can make demands. Uh, We can be aggressive and a pain in the ass uh, to actually get some movement here.
1: Pick up her book, Taking Back the Trey. Uh, check out her TED Talks on YouTube. Joshna Marhaj has been our guest. The last thing Marco and I wanted to say, we'd be remiss not to, to mention this. You have a podcast. Yes. It is not so dissimilar in some weird ways from it's the podcast true. you're listening to right now, right? Oh my God, it's really true in so many ways with the, with the
0: cultural lineup between Mirella and I and the sort of food beverage breakdown. That is super
1: sweet. That's great. It's an Italian-South Asian mix, like what you're hearing here. The na- it's called uh, Hot Plate, a post-foodie podcast. Talk yeah. to me about that. What is a post-foodie? So we are really trying to push the conversations about food
0: beyond uh, where the hottest, most delicious thing is to eat. Uh, and it's not because we don't care about that, but it's because it's, it's there are other lovely people covering that. And there are other things uh, about our food and about the culture of our food that Morella and I are both super interested in. And so we uh, bring probably about four or five topics to the table uh, for discussion, uh, everything from um, just new new concepts. Like uh, just recently, there was a talk about how people are advocating uh, you putting a slice of a pickle in your beer, in cheap beer, to improve huh? the quality of the taste. <laughs> right? Hilarious. And then recently, yeah. I heard this delightful story about how the there was a backup in the venting at the Lint Chocolate Factory in Switzerland. And that right. resulted... In one afternoon of quite literally a cocoa shower in the whole town around the factory.
2: Wow, right? That's making you
1: aroused, cocoa. Marco, isn't it? Cocoa shower. I think you've you've asked you've asked your wife to give you a
2: couple of those, and she said no. That's no. my you Saturday know? night. is a cocoa shower. <laughs> That's <your> <laughs> uh, uh, no, I, have, I have. Yeah. I was going to say I have one question for you. Yes. We started the show talking about chapatis, and yes. you know. Ali won't give me the secret to a good chapati. I'm wondering if you can help me oh. out here. Uh, the secret is the way you roll that dough, right? Wow. Well, after you okay.
0: after you knead the dough together, let it rest for about half an hour until it takes a nice, your finger poke. Uh, there you have to rip off like slightly like golf ball-ish sized pieces. But there is a rolling technique that happens right there that you really sort of get your thumb and your pinky finger and the palm of your other hand involved because you need to end up with this little belly button on the other side of the dough. And okay. that, is, that is the trick. That is the thing that you have to get taught well so that when you roll it out, it spins uh, and it puffs up the way it needs to so that you don't, uh, you know what I mean, get expelled from your in-law's house. Uh, okay. But that the rolling of the dough
1: is a key Piece. People right. just it. This me that more. Me? There's another ingredient. Look, chapatis could not be easier. Equal parts uh, flour, equal parts water, little bit of salt. There's there's no there's no magic in the ingredients, but I'll tell you, there's no substitute for practice.
0: Yep. You can okay. pinch
1: it off, you can do all this, but you got to get you got to get a rhythm, you got to get a momentum going and you got to get that practice. So if you think you're going to walk out there, Marco, and roll out a terrific chapati first time, I got news for you, buddy. You got to put in some work. Yeah. Rhythm right, and listen, practice. My,
0: oh, that's chapati my Saturday,
2: Saturday,
1: night. <laughs> your Saturday night. What is that, Josiah? Your your
0: chapatis do for what? Years when I was younger, all my chapatis looked like Africa.
1: Right. Right, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I picture, I picture Marco doing Newfoundland a couple of times right, right out of the gate. Right. A little bit it's hanging off, a little bit hanging off
0: the area. side there. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. <laughs> but oh, uh, as with uh, as with so much of food, practice is the name of the game. Joshina, really great to talk to you. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, oh, you're so welcome. Thank you for this lovely yes. conversation.
2: Thank you, Joshna. Uh,
1: as we said again, TED Talk is on YouTube. The book is taking back the trade. Joshina has a uh, a podcast called Hot Plate. To our listeners, you love food. That's why you are here. You love South Asian people. You tolerate Italians for all those reasons. <laughs> Hot Plate, a post-foodie podcast, is worth tuning into. Uh, thank you very much again to our guest, Joshina Marhaj. I'm Ali Hassan. I'm Marco Timpano. Until we eat and drink again. We hope you got your fill of eat and drink with Ali Hassan and Marco Timpano. Follow them on Instagram and Twitter at Podcast Eat Drink. Email them your cocktail and food suggestions to podcasteatdrink at gmail.com. Until the next episode, bottoms up.